This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. We love hearing stories about random acts of kindness that people perform to loved ones or total strangers. One of our regular contributors, Stephen Rosiniak, shares with us an inspiring story of kindness entitled Hope's Name is Danny. To read more about the background of this story, please visit stephenrosiniak.com. Here's Stephen. There was never any doubt that if he were ever confronted with the opportunity to save a life, he would. And so, when Detective Danny DeBoyce learned that he was a potential match for a patient in desperate need of a life-saving bone marrow transplant, he knew just what he needed to do. Unfortunately, before he could actually have the opportunity to help another with their pain and suffering, Danny would first have to deal with his own. The story actually begins a few years earlier, when Nicole, a young girl in Danny's hometown of Wayne, New Jersey, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Residents, friends, and family members organized a drive to find a suitable donor capable of providing the life-saving bone marrow that could lead to the eventual eradication of her disease. Over 1,000 people responded to the call in the hopes of becoming that donor, including Danny, and as well, several of his fellow officers from the police department. Although a matching donor for Nicole was never identified, she went on to endure subsequent treatments and today remains cancer-free. A few years later, and as a result of his decision to be tested as a possible donor for Nicole, Danny was identified as an unheard-of perfect match for someone else suffering from another life-threatening disease. Without hesitation, he agreed to become a donor. But before he could do so, Danny had to submit to various evaluations and procedures, all of which would clear the way for him to receive the repeated doses of the drug that would prepare his blood cells for their eventual collection. Unfortunately, this drug came with a somber warning. Its side effects could potentially make him sick, maybe more so than he had ever experienced before. But despite this information, he wasn't dissuaded. After a litany of tests and pokes and prods, Danny got down to the business of becoming a real-life superhero. As his body began receiving the five-day course of injections that would ultimately prepare his own blood cells for their eventual collection, Danny's health quickly deteriorated. He began experiencing the flu-like symptoms that he had been forewarned could occur. And by the fifth day, his symptoms had become severe. Despite the rapid collapse of his condition, he endured his part of what had now become a well-orchestrated team effort. There was a second man who was equally invested in this story, and he too was suffering, but for an entirely different reason. Unlike Danny, he was dying. As the efforts to prevent his demise intensified, his chances for survival now rested in the hands, and especially in the blood, of a complete stranger. While Danny was doing his part, 
The soon-to-be recipient was receiving high doses of chemotherapy, thus rendering his body defenseless against any and all infection. A necessary step before he could receive Danny's life-saving cells. We don't know the identity of this patient whose body was now fully engaged in an all-or-nothing battle against so many demon cells. But we do know something of the man who came forth from the crowd intent on saving his life. You see, it had always been Danny's choice. He could have simply said, enough is enough, and just walked away at any time from the hospital and from the drug that was now at the heart of his physical distress, his suffering. But he wouldn't. He couldn't, because if he had, the needy recipient might have survived a little while longer. But by this time, it had truly become a matter of do or die, and Danny wasn't about to let anyone die. In the everyday world of law enforcement, police officers routinely rush towards circumstances from which others are running away. Danny exemplifies this spirit, and yet, many still feel the need to ask him why he went through all that he had for someone he didn't even know, for someone he hadn't even met. Sometimes, he'll say the recipient might have been somebody's husband or son, father or best friend, someone much like Danny himself. And other times, he simply reflects on his own good fortune, a loving wife and great kids, good friends, and a job that he likes, all the while referring to himself as the lucky one. But of all the answers that he's ever offered as to why he suffered for the sake of another, perhaps one stands out above the rest and simply speaks volumes of the man himself. He did it because he could. In a world where too often those of whom we had once admired have since fallen, it's comforting to know that real heroes, superheroes, still do exist amongst us. To the sick, where there's life, there's hope. And today, hope's name is Danny. For information on becoming a donor, please visit Be The Match. And you've been listening to Stephen Rasiniak. And thanks to Faith for producing the story, as always. And my goodness, Detective Danny Du Bois. What a story of sacrifice and of love to a total stranger. And in the end, it wasn't even a sacrifice to him. He did it because he could. He could have said enough is enough at any time. He could have avoided his own suffering, but it was a matter of life and death, Stephen Roseniak said. And often, Danny would just reflect on his own good fortune. He was the lucky one. And my goodness, this country is filled with Dannys, and we're looking for more stories like this. If you have a Danny Du Bois story in your town, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. This country is filled with good and beautiful people, and we love sharing their stories. This is Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and up next, a story from a small business owner during this national crisis, this national epidemic, this national shutdown, and we're hearing from small business owners themselves, and my goodness, folks, what so many owners are doing. Oh, my goodness. This is the real heart and soul of the American people and the American character. But don't listen to us. This next story you're about to hear comes from a family-run business that's in one of the toughest industries in this country, being the hardest hit by this virus and by world events at the same time. Here's the voice of another American business owner. I'm Sid Jansma, Jr., I'm in the oil and gas exploration business with my family and located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we explore for oil and gas uh, around the United States, primarily in Utah and Wyoming and Michigan. This is, of course, upsetting right now for more than one reason. The biggest, of course, is COVID-19, which is impacting our employees. We've closed our central office in Grand Rapids and everybody is working from long distance. And that's that can work okay. Out in the oil field, it's actually easier because the nature of production is that your wells are scattered here and there. Our wells are sometimes a mile apart. So the people working out in the oil field have are very easy to uh, socially distance themselves from people and they can do their work. And uh, we're just emphasizing to them that when they come together or they go get a hamburger or whatever, it's uh, exposing them. So we're trying to keep alerting them to watching out what they got to do. So out in the field, I think for the oil industry, it isn't too bad. It's different, of course, in a refinery, but we don't do that. So I don't have any idea what they're doing. The other side of the thing right now is we are watching right now the need for oil in the United States. I mean, through because of gasoline and diesel demand dropping, that we are already have a substantial overhang of supply of oil in the United States to demand. And thus the price of oil has gone down like a lead balloon. Oil prices six months ago were in the range of 50 to $60 a barrel, 53, 55. Today, they're down to about 20 something. I was going through my uh, computer right now to spot my pricing. And of course, it's the last place I'll look. There it is. Pricing today is, looks like it's having a hard time bringing it up. There may be so many people looking for it right now, honestly, but it's in the 20s. So it's, it's, thousands and thousands of oil wells in the United States are underwater today price-wise where they, they cannot afford to produce them. And in our case, we have production here and there that's substantial and we can afford to produce it. Even if we don't make a lot of money, we'll produce it, as I said, because we have people that, that want to do it. But I will tell you, there are a lot of oil companies that don't have the background, that don't have the financial backing to do what's happening at 20 some odd dollars a barrel. They'll have to shut in. But we expect as a family that we're gonna be looking at oil in the teens sometime in the next little while. And uh, we're wondering if even the refineries are going to be able to buy oil from a number of us because there just will become a, such a supply overhang that the refineries won't be able to take it. And uh, we will actually shut in production. We do not want to shut in production. 
because um, we can keep producing. Um, we need the revenue, and we need the uh, even at lower revenue, at least it covers the uh, cost of the employees. So we will produce at the price. But if the refinery finally says they cannot take the production, then we will have to shut in and go from there. I think in our case as a company, we don't intend to lay off people. We will we will pay salaries. We will uh, we have uh, the the oil business has very technical people, as I'm sure a lot of other businesses have. But if I lay off a, ge- a geophysicist in Grand Rapids, Michigan, they're kind of hard to come by later on. Now they that's not saying they won't find work elsewhere, but uh, we're going to keep our staff together and our technical people together and um, just go forward from there. And uh, even if it's uh, a number of months, uh, we'll do that. And I think a lot of other oil companies will do that also because not everyone can go out in the field and open up a well that's producing hundreds of barrels of oil a day. If it's done improperly, you can you can really hurt things. So we'll keep our people together. And we're a smaller company, so we, we every name has got a face for my son and myself. I mean, uh, the, we, all, we know everyone. But I'm sure there will be bigger companies, too, that will take the long view. And this is a time in our life where, where our fellow employees and our fellow citizens have to feel supported. And if we let them down and uh, kind of run for the trenches ourselves, um, they're going to remember that, and so will I. And I've got to look at myself in the mirror someday and say, how did I behave during this kind of stuff? And so I think it's just, uh, I think that it's a lot of a lot of people, a lot of employers will take the long view and will uh, support their employees very strongly. I'm sure we'll see that when this when we get through this. The best thinking in the oil industry right now, though, is that this price slump will most likely be around for at least 18 months, maybe to 24 months, because you just don't turn it around. It, it, you have to soak up the extra oil that's been oversupplied. You have to start up the wells that were shut down. And so this low price regime will be in effect for some time. And that means that the people in the United States are gonna have some low prices on their gasoline and diesel fuel, probably for the next, not probably, but definitely for the next many months. So. Uh, Good for them. <laughs> that, well, we we live in a system. The, the, the capitalist system means that we allocate resources based on value, and that's a good way to do it. And and I hope that our listeners, your listeners, don't hold it against anybody when the price goes up to seventy or eighty dollars a barrel, because that's where it has to go to get certain oil provinces producing, so that you've got an overhang of supply someday. So the price goes up and down, and uh, right now certainly it hurts us as a company, but also it's it's something that um, that we've learned to live through. And uh, anyone in our business, when life is good, should be putting money aside for when life isn't so good on a revenue basis. And we have put money aside, and shouldn't everybody be doing that? Even as they think about their personal finances, put a little teeny bit of the side at least every month or every week. And you might have a little something when baloney happens like this. So, yep, that works okay. And the price will go back up because it must. The bigger thing is we're really, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's scary because you don't know where this virus will hit. You don't know. We don't yet as a country know what the uh, impact of it is as far as, is it something that you get over easily? What does it do? And so, uh, 
part of our job, I think, as leaders in our own business is to to be there for our people that work with us and to say, hey, we don't know either, but then we're not going to say, oh, it'll be nice, it'll be easy, because how do we know? We don't. But we can say, we will be with you guys all the time and you ladies all the time. We're here with you. We're suffering with you. And uh, we're going to be here. And uh, then for me, I'm a, I'm a person of faith. I believe that uh, God has his finger on this. Why it happens, I don't have a clue. But I do trust God that he knows what he's doing and, and that uh, evil things like this come along. And uh, God is here to be with us when crap like this happens. And uh, he's been with us before. And uh, my dad lived through the Second World War and the Korean War. Uh, was immigrant go from there. And there were horrible things that happened there. But the bottom line is God is with us. And I'm trusting that he will be. So we'll get through this and go from there. And you've been listening to Sid Jansma Jr., chairman of the energy exploration company Wolverine Gas and Oil on the coronavirus and its impact on his business, his community. And this is the voice of the American business owner, folks. Yeah, there are some schmucks and some jerks. And the media loves to use them as the norm, but we know they're the outlier. And listen to what he said. Employees have to feel supported at this time. And how did I behave during this crisis? I've got to look myself in the mirror. And so many American business owners are doing precisely this, everything they can to preserve their employees. My goodness, as he said, it's hard to find a geophysicist when you need one. And so you want to keep your team intact, wait for things to change, and emerge on the other side stronger and better and closer. And by the way, we're interested in your stories, stories from your community, the Sid Jansmas Jr. of your towns. And if they're there, or if you're listening and no one, send the stories, send the people to ouramericannetwork.org. We want these stories to go nationwide. Sid Jansma Jr.'s story, here on Our American Stories. return to Our American Stories, and our next one is about a writer, a writer you may know, and you may have even read back in high school or college, if you were lucky enough, Louisa May Alcott, and she's the writer of Little Woman. The book was her most popular, and it's been adapted twice as a silent film and four times with sound. It's also been made into six television shows. Here's Faith with Louisa May's story. In the mid-19th century, few people felt that a woman could be unmarried and still be happy and successful, even live a fulfilled life. 
Author Louisa May Alcott was what people would have called an old maid. Yet her life was filled with many successes and experiences, including her most successful book, Little Women, which she wrote in 1868 and 1869 in two separate volumes. After the success of the first volume, her publisher asked her to write the second. But we often read them as one. The book is a semi-autobiographical account of her childhood with her three sisters. It follows the life of the four March girls, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, who live with their mother, Marmee, while their father is serving off as a pastor miles away from home involved in the American Civil War. Alcott identified with Joe, the stubborn, willful, fiery-tempered, but charmingly creative second eldest daughter. I was born with a boy's nature and have fought my fight with a boy's spirit and a boy's wrath. Never liked girls or knew many, except my sisters. The book is the girl's journey from childhood to womanhood and all that lies therein. It's a romantic child's fiction and a sentimental novel. Literary historian Sarah Elbert argues that within Little Women, we find the first representation of the all-American girl and her multiple aspects displayed in the differing March sisters. While Little Women was the most successful of Louisa May Alcott's writings, it was actually the book that she never wanted to write. Niles wants a girl's story. Lively, simple books are very much needed for girls. I said I'd try. Here's Susan Cheever, writer of Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography, talking about how Alcott came to write Little Women. It was the book that absolutely changed her life. It made her rich. It made her well-known after years and years of struggle. Uh, But she didn't want to write it. It was the last thing she wanted to do. She felt it went against all of her creative impulses. She had said to her editor, I'll think about it, and stalled and stalled and stalled. She didn't want to do it at all. And it, she ended up doing it, as we'll see, through a series of unfortunate accidents. And I think that often great things happen to us through a series of what seem to be unfortunate accidents. Uh, Louisa May Alcott was 36 years old when she wrote Little Women in 1868. She was the second of four daughters um, of an extraordinary family who lived in and around Boston. She was the daughter of Abba Alcott, who was an aristocrat who had married Bronson Alcott very late in life. He was one of these characters. He wore a cape and a big hat, and he carried a cane, and he had long blonde hair. Uh, But he had a lot of trouble making a living. Anyway, she was the daughter of Bronson Alcott, and Bronson Alcott, I believe, was an educational genius. He really was the first person in this country to start progressive education. And he did it because he believed, and he had no education, so he pulled this out of the sky. He believed that children were angels who came from heaven, as Wordsworth had written, trailing clouds of glory. Now, most people in the 1840s believed that children were vipers, who had to be forcefully civilized before they could join us, you know, big people. Bronson believed the opposite. He believed that adults could learn from children. He gave Louisa one great thing, which was the community in which she grew up. His friends were Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne and all kinds of people like that. So as a girl, she was taught by Thoreau. She used Emerson's library right away. 
and she grew up in this extraordinary progressive intellectual community as the daughter of a man who was very respected in that community. Um, Bronson was fascinated by children, just fascinated. He wasn't just an educator, he was a kind of student of children. But she drove him a little bit crazy, and she was definitely the family rebel, and there was a lot of disappointment in her, in her, both from her father and her mother. Now, Bronson, this brilliant educator and this friend of the brilliant transcendentalist, had one, he had two big problems. One was he couldn't hang on to money, and the other was that he couldn't write. He was one of the world's worst writers. Uh, one critic said that reading Bronson Alcott was like watching a train go by with 15 boxcars and one passenger. Louisa decided that she had to make money for the family and that she would do it by writing. Louisa did everything she could get paid for. She was a seamstress, she was a teacher, she was a governess, she was a companion. So she decided to take this essay she had written to, to the great editor of of the time, James T. Fields. And she knew James T. Fields through her father. James T. Fields was Hawthorne's editor. James T. Fields was De Quincey's editor. James T. Fields was the man, right? So she takes her essay and she walks across Boston. They're living on Pinckney Street. And uh, here's what happens. She passed the Boston Common and turned into the bustling center of downtown. There, the spire of the Old South Church presided like a disapproving Puritan dowager over the teeming business of the new Boston. There was the bookshop next to Mrs. Abner's coffee house, where Fields took authors and colleagues for coffee and hot buns. There was the gorgeous palace of the music hall, where Louisa had recently gone to hear Theodore Parker demand equality for women. Now Louisa headed for the second floor of the old corner bookshop, where Fields had his office behind a green curtain that separated him from his young assistant Thomas Niles and the piles of manuscripts he had yet to read. She handed him the manuscript, her first and last memoir essay, How I Went Out to Service. He motioned her to sit and began to read it. She could hear the noise of Thomas Niles' pen scratching and the chatter in the bookstore downstairs. Finally, the great James T. Fields looked up at her and delivered the verdict she would remember for a long time. Stick to your teaching, Miss Alcott. You can't write. That was not a good moment. Um, yet, I think it was the moment at which Louisa May Alcott became a writer. And I think that if you want to be a writer, you take criticism in, and you're hurt, of course, and devastated, of course, but you almost immediately turn it around and go, well, I'll show them. And it's clearly what happened with Louisa Alcott and James T. Fields. James T. Fields was trying to be nice. He tried to help her in her teaching career. He loaned her $40 to help her start a school with her sister. But she took that in in a very interesting way. However, Louisa's career did not turn around at that point. But she decided that she would show James T. Fields and the rest of the world by writing a big, serious novel, a novel that would please her friend Emerson, a novel that would impress her father, a novel which she called Moods. Uh, probably you haven't read it, maybe you haven't even heard of it. I, I don't think it's such a successful novel, and neither did anybody else, Wh which was hard for her, because she loved that novel. Anyway, she got one review which was particularly painful in the North American Review, uh, from a guy who said, um, the two most striking facts with regard to moods are the author's ignorance of human nature and her self-confidence in spite of that ignorance. 
So that wasn't good, and her writing career was not looking good. And then the, their entire lives came to a halt with the beginning of the Civil War. And when we come back, more of this extraordinary story of perseverance, and my goodness, so much more. The story of Louisa May Alcott continues here on Our American Stories. the story of Louisa May Alcott, the writer of Little Woman. Author Susan Cheever has been telling us her story, and Susan Cheever wrote the book Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography. We left off with Alcott's writing career not seeming very promising, but it all came to a stop when the Civil War began. And Louisa and everyone in Concord and everyone in Cambridge um, took it very hard. It, 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 of course, was a nightmare. Nobody thought it was going to happen. Louisa didn't know what to do. She was very involved with abolition. Concord had been a stop on the Underground Railroad. She had seen the whole thing. So she ended up enlisting as a Civil War nurse. And it was she was one of the first female nurses in this country. It, it was thought that nurses had to be men because they had to handle naked bodies, etc., 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 But a woman named Dorothy Dix had started, had convinced the War Department to start a corps of female nurses as long as they were plain, unmarried, and over 30. Louisa fit the bill. So she went down to Washington, D.C. to work in the Union Hotel Hospital. It had been a hotel. It was just barely remodeled into a hospital. And oddly enough, or amazingly enough, the second day she got there was the day that in Fredericksburg, Virginia... A few miles south, General Ambrose Burnside ordered 14 suicidal attacks of the Union Army against the entrenched Confederate Army. Here are historians Chris Mikowski and Donald Fance describing that fateful day. The majority of federal troops at this point are not very optimistic about their chances. They recognize how strong that position is the Confederates have atop Marie's Heights. Union troops have to charge across several hundred yards of open ground just to reach the Confederate position. Once there, they're going to encounter Confederates who were posted very strongly in massed ranks behind a stone wall. If you survived all that, then you had the Confederate artillery, which was on the high ground behind the stone wall. Those guns were able to fire down over the heads of their own men and scour the ground in front of them. So any way you look at it, it was a killing ground. The day at Fredericksburg was one of the worst battles of the war. The ground was carpeted with the Union dead. And the next morning, Louisa May Alcott looked out the window of the Union Hotel Hospital and she saw 
carts as far as she could see. It looked to her like farmers coming to market, but of course it was carts filled with the dead and wounded men from Fredericksburg coming to her hospital. But she loved it. She was great at being a nurse. She knew how to talk to the men. She knew how to dig in. She learned how to wash wounds. She worked with the surgeons. She took the job of being up all night, of being the night nurse. She told them stories from Dickens. She wrote letters home when they were alive, and then when the men died, she wrote that very sad letter home saying that the man had died. She just, everything that she hated and that had troubled her fell away. There was no phoniness. There was no, you know, shame about being poor. It was life and death, and she knew what to do when the stakes were that high, and it was an extraordinary experience for her. And her letters home from the hospital are written in a completely different way than she had ever written before. It was in the Union Hotel Hospital that she found her voice. However, at the Union Hotel, she also fell sick with a lung infection, which in those days they gave you medicine that had mercury in it. So this resulted in her growing sicker and sicker until her father had to come and get her and take her back to Concord. On the brink of death, her and her father put together the book Hospital Sketches, which in the end was the compilation of her letters home and the letters written to the families whose soldiers had fallen. During that time, she was not sure she would live herself. Louisa May Alcott, through the help and care of her family, overcame her illness. And being the hard worker that she was, she didn't wait long before trying to find work again. As she got better, she decided again that it was time to take her next step as a writer. So she went to Thomas Niles, who was her editor. He had been James T. Fields' assistant. And she said to him, you know, what, what should my next book be? And he said, well, he said, the only book I could really sell that you might write would be a book for young women. And she was horrified. She was insulted. She was like, do they ask Emerson to write a book for young women? I don't think so, right? What is this? I thought I was a serious writer. You know, all these years she had worked to be a serious writer. She had written all these stories under a pseudonym for Frank Leslie. She had written moods. She had written hospital sketches. And they were still sort of trivializing her, she thought. But what happened was uh, Thomas Niles was an inspired bully. So he wrote Bronson Alcott a letter saying, um, you know, I'm a big fan of your writing. And I would love it if Louisa wrote this book for young women. And if she did, I think we could publish your next book as well. So that was a brilliant stroke. Bronson started in on Louisa, trying to get her to come home and write this book for young women. And eventually he got her um she came home in january of or went back to concord she had she'd gone to boston she'd gotten herself a job she was having a good time she wasn't going to write the book for young women but he got her back to concord in january of 1868 for the purpose of writing this book for young women which she didn't want to write and so she stalled and stalled and stalled she did everything but write the book for young women january went by february march april may um, finally, in May, she sat down just thinking, oh, you know, I-, I might as well try it. She was totally discouraged about it. She thought she had written a little bit about four sisters who she called the pathetic family. So she just thought, well, I'll just write what happened, you know, which is, of course, not what she did. But that's how it felt to her. 
And, you know, within about three weeks, she had finished the first part of Little Women. She didn't like it very much. Thomas Niles didn't think it was too great either. Um, Thomas Niles had a niece who got hold of the manuscript and was up all night. But it's the minute, almost the minute Thomas Niles published the first part of Little Women in November, uh, the outpouring of letters and admiration was huge. And by Christmas, Louisa May Alcott was one of the best-known writers in the world and one of the wealthiest. So it was really a kind of amazing overnight success uh, because of what happened with, with Little Women, that which she didn't want to write. So after the huge success of Little Women, a letter to James T. Fields. I remember he had lent her money. Dear Mr. Fields, once upon a time you lent me $40, kindly saying that I might return them when I had made a pot of gold. As the miracle has been unexpectedly wrought, I wish to fulfill my part of the bargain and herewith repay my debt with many thanks. Very truly yours, L.M. Alcott. So um, she got her own back. The same man who told her to stick to her teaching, Miss Alcott, you can't write. She got to prove wrong. Little Women wasn't necessarily the book she wanted to write. But in the end, what was its impact on others? And, ultimately, on herself. She wrote the first part, she turned it in, he didn't like it much, he published it, the outpouring was huge. And then he said to her, okay, write the second part. And then they both realized that they had a tiger by the tail. And then, God bless him, he said to her, I can give you a flat fee or you can take a percentage, but if I were you, I would take the percentage. So she did. Neither of them realized what she had done. It's sort of fascinating. And I don't think that's that unusual, I have to say. I think writers often don't know when they've done their best work. The beauty and intrigue of this book is the perspective that Alcott brings. She wrote reflectively on her own life. In one chapter in particular, we find Jo at the age of 25, feeling old and like she has nothing to show for it. She's been focused on her career rather than finding a husband. And in this moment, the narrator detours from the story. To the girl in the 19th century, growing up and not finding a husband could feel like the end of the world. Little Women became a memoir of sorts. So although Alcott was quite happy and successful, she still had reflections from her spinsterhood. It's interesting to contrast her life with the pity she feels for old maids in the following passage. Quote, At 25, girls begin to talk about being old maids, but secretly resolve that they never will be. At 30, they say nothing about it, but quietly accept the fact, and, if sensible, console themselves by remembering that they have 20 more useful happy years in which they may be learning to grow old gracefully. Don't laugh at the spinsters, dear girls, for often very tender, tragic romances are hidden away in the hearts that beat so quietly under the sober gowns, and many silent sacrifices of youth, health, ambition, love itself, make the faded faces beautiful in God's sight. Even the sad, sour sisters should be kindly dealt with, because they have missed the sweetest part of life, if for no other reason. In looking at them with compassion, not contempt, girls in their bloom should remember that they too may miss the blossom time. That rosy cheeks don't last forever. That silver threads will come in that bonny brown hair. And that by and by, 
kindness and respect will be as sweet as love and admiration now. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And what a story it is, Louisa May Alcott's story. And you can hear so much of what we do on the arts and literature in particular. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done stories about Melville, about Hemingway, Fitzgerald, with a reading from The Great Gatsby. Louisa May Alcott's story, in a sense, the story of the 19th century and the beginning of the women's movement in a very real and smart and bold way. All of that here on Our American Stories. stories and we love hearing stories from our own home state we do something about this state too and there are not a lot of stories about Mississippi out there in the country and we broadcast from Oxford Mississippi a small town about an hour south of Memphis the home of William Faulkner the home of Ole Miss so many other great writers John Grisham Morgan Freeman lives nearby and we are happy to call this place home and Randall Haley has shared one of her stories with us before, and it was called Juking in the Delta with My Old Man, and it was beautiful. She's from the Delta, but lives in Oxford now, and while she loves her new home, she misses her old one. Here's Randall Haley. There are three things that Oxford did best. In 1995, a young woman full of ambition and determined to celebrate the food, music, and art of Oxford, Mississippi couldn't be deterred from the idea of a festival on the square. I knew it would work. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was young and naive, didn't know enough to know it might not work, or I'm bad about thinking I can make whatever happen. Once I decide, I'm like, yeah, we're going to make it happen. Robin Tannehill was hired in June of 1995 to be the director of the Oxford Tourism Council, which is now called Visit Oxford. Tannehill immediately began work on her first project. 22 years later, that project has become one of Oxford's most celebrated weekends, bringing over 60,000 tourists to the square. For a weekend that all started with the idea of a young, naive woman, it's safe to agree with Tannehill and say, Double Decker Arts Festival has become just as big as a home football game weekend. So, what is Double Decker to me? Well, I was born and raised in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Of course, I live and work in Oxford, and it's most certainly my second home. But there's just something about the Delta that makes a person proud to call it his or her own. My love for Oxford comes close to that of the Delta. But there are two distinctive lifestyles that, despite the proximity and distance, cannot compare. For a country girl like me, Oxford culture was more comparable to city life. Even though Oxford is considered a small town in every sense of the word, I was so blinded by the rich culture in Oxford when I moved here that I thought, Oxford is huge. 
In reality, there's no more acreage in Oxford than there is in my hometown of Clarksdale. It felt so big because Oxford has about five times the amount of restaurants and places to shop. And the university, of course, which has me praying for summer traffic on Jackson Avenue most of the time. But it was the ambiance that revolved around an artsy culture that caught my attention. It was one I could relate to. I was no stranger to the artsy type. My heart beats to a blues rhythm 99% of the time. What I wasn't accustomed to were buildings on almost every plot of land on the square, with no space between them. I was used to empty parking lots and grain bins, if anything. And after driving up the hill toward the square on Jefferson Avenue, thinking it would use every drop of gas in my gas tank to make it up the hill, I realized how much I really loved the flatlands. After all, the biggest hill I ever saw in the Delta was the man-made levee. However, despite all of its differences, I found a piece of that culture I loved, a true Delta aura at the Double Decker Arts Festival in Oxford, Mississippi. While roaming the square, I caught the scent. Lee Margaret Hamilton of Greenville, Mississippi sat in her chair scanning card after card as the line grew outside of her booth. The crowd couldn't get enough of her So Delta candles. With scents such as blues, sweet tea, and cotton rope, I could smell home within yards of the booth. When Hamilton began So Delta Candle Company in 2009, she wanted to produce a Mississippi manufactured product that would capture the Delta in all of its essence. The smell, the sight, the sound, and the culture. She used the purest soy wax she could find and voila. People from across seas, celebrities, everybody and their mama were ordering these original candles. Actress Laura Dern's assistant gave Hamilton a phone call one day and she said, We want to buy them for ourselves and we want to buy some to give as gifts. She bought some for actresses Mary Steenbergen and Reese Witherspoon and asked to have them sent to her by the next day. She wanted them in California in time to enjoy the sweet smells while getting dressed for the Oscars. Hamilton hurried to have them sent immediately and said, When Hollywood calls, you have to answer. Sending candles to Dern, Steenbergen, and Witherspoon was a memory Hamilton will forever hold on to. But their most rewarding sale to date was the shipment that made its way to Afghanistan. After an order was placed online, Hamilton read the zip code and found that an American soldier was ordering candles from her. He ordered Mississippi and Cotton Row, Hamilton said. I just kind of put everything into perspective and thought, gosh, this guy really misses home to be ordering candles that are indicative of his homeland. And that really touched me. What I'm doing, people really love and appreciate. They're so connected. That Saturday on the square, I felt I could relate to that man who missed home. Sure, Oxford is lovely and everything it has to offer, but that one scent that makes you stop dead in your tracks to take another whiff, that one scent that reminds you of where you came from, who you are, and what you'll be, puts you in a trance where all you can say is, So Delta. And beautiful job as always, and I think we'll be hearing more from Randall. And we've got voices now coming from all over the country, from Boston, from Southern California, Los Angeles, and from little towns. Someone from Des Moines is about to start helping us with their state fair. And WHO, a big, big signal in the middle of our great country, loves the show. We're hearing great things in Boston. And if you've got a story, send it to us, ouramericannetwork.org. You hear how we do it. It's your voice. 
We don't change it. We don't mess with it. We just share it. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our newsletter. It's free, and we'll send you the best five stories, the very best five stories of the week in transcription form and audio. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Randall Haley's story, her Delta story, the homesick blues, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes to us from our own Monty Montgomery and Patrick Foster, an automotive historian, on the history of the classic car company, Studebaker. In 1852, the Studebaker Corporation was founded by five blacksmithing brothers in the city of South Bend, Indiana. It was a big corporation. You know, it was one of the biggest corporations in America. And for, you know, a long time it was a, a small business, but they built horse-drawn wagons, and they grew to become, at one time, the, the largest wagon maker in the country. And their products were sold all around the world, and, and they, you know, became very wealthy men and quite successful. What happened with uh, a lot of producers of horse-drawn vehicles, uh, when the horseless carriage came out, they were not quite certain what to do with it. They began producing electric cars in 1902 and when it finally became obvious that gasoline cars were going to be pretty much the standard mode of, of transportation they contracted with another company and started offering gas-powered cars Studebaker Garford they kind of dipped their toe into the automobile business until oh I think it was about 1915 they started producing their own gasoline cars you know from a Studebaker design and because of the, their fame you know, they became successful. They did all right until the Great Depression, and then they, they went bankrupt for a while. And uh, I get criticized by Studebaker people who, who say they were not actually bankrupt, but they were bankrupt. But luckily, they, a couple of managers came along and were able to get the company out of bankruptcy and, and rebuilt it. It was a new company that came out of the ashes of the old one. And the largest change for Studebaker was finally attempting to compete with the larger automakers by producing something a bit more affordable to the average American. And they eventually got into the lower price ranges in 1939 with a car called the Champion that was uh, very successful. It's big. It's new. It's the big news in the low price field. The big news Studebaker. Look at it. The Champion was a really remarkable car. It, it, it came out for 1939. Studebaker put a lot of effort into it. You see, part of the problem, the biggest problem that the independent American automakers had is trying to compete with the big three, with Ford, 
and Chevy in Plymouth, they've got volume that gives them low prices and gives them more than low prices, uh, low amortization. And that means taking a case of Ford, if you're building a half a million cars a year or a million cars a year or two million cars a year, and you have to buy a page of advertising, well, you can spread that cost over two million cars. If you're Studebaker, that page of advertising costs you the same amount of money, but you can only spread it over maybe 100,000 or 200,000 cars. So your cost per vehicle tends to be higher, not because the parts are more are higher, but your overhead is higher. So the champion was an attempt to break out of that by coming up with a with a really high volume car. And to do that, they had to be smart with their costs. And they were. They built the car to be a little bit smaller than the big three cars, just a little bit, but in a design that retained almost the same interior space. And the car was lighter, so it would cost less to produce because automotive costs at those times were figured by the pound. It, it allowed them to come out with a car that was good-looking, roomy, competitive, price-wise very competitive, performance-wise very competitive, and yet got better fuel economy. So they, they had an advantage over the others. They could match them with roominess and ride and handling and performance and price. Studebaker did extremely well with it. Uh, you know, it, it helped rebuild them in, in the post-war era. And by the 50s, they were really competitive with the big three. They were the, the largest volume of the American independent car companies by far. But trouble was on the horizon for Studebaker and the other independent car manufacturers. 1954 was the most competitive year in car sales, probably in, in the history of the auto industry. Henry Ford II had recently taken over his grandfather's firm, and he was itching to take on Chevrolet. And he announced, I believe it was 1953, that he was going to outsell Chevrolet in 54 or kill the company trying. And what he did in late 53 into 54 is he ordered up more production from his factories and ordered that those cars be shipped to dealers whether the dealers had ordered them or not. So if you were a Ford dealer in South Bend, Indiana, and you ordered 20 new Fords for the month, you might get 40 of them along with a bill. And you could either pay the bill or give up your franchise. You know, there was no messing with Henry Ford II. So, you know, most dealers said, okay, well, we're going to pay for the cars and we're going we're gonna to sell the heck out of them. And they started cutting prices like crazy, advertising like crazy. And the result was Ford sales skyrocketed. Well, Chevrolet wasn't going to take that sitting down, so they did the same thing. Even Plymouth got in on it. So you've got the, big, the three biggest automakers in the world fighting it out tooth and nail for every sale. And I mean, they did dirty things that are actually illegal. They did this practice called bootlegging where they would take brand new cars and run them through an auction as used cars just to get rid of them, just to get a little bit money back and you know be able to stay in the game. Against that, Studebaker, Nash, Hudson, Packard, they just couldn't compete. And sales just dropped like a stone. So the little automakers, the independent American automakers, started bleeding money. Nash ended up purchasing Hudson Motor Company and they formed American Motors. And Studebaker and Packard merged with each other. They did it so quickly, they didn't do due diligence. 
When you're doing a merger, you have to do what's called due diligence, where A looks at the books of B to see what sort of profits and losses they're making and what their overhead is, and B looks at the books of A for the same reason. This way, you're going into this marriage with both eyes open. Well, Studebaker and Packard were so desperate to merge with each other, and also, I think both of them were afraid of what the other one would think of their, you know, their, their ledgers, that they didn't do due diligence. They just said, you tell us how much, you know, what your overhead is and how much your profit and loss is for the last year, and we'll do the same for you, and we're not going to check each other's books. And both sides lied like rugs. So the upshot was about three months after they merged together, they discovered they were losing money by the bucket load. They were bleeding. I mean, it was it was unbelievable how much money they were losing. And the head of Studebaker Packard, James Nance, sent uh, one of his financial people over to South Bend and said, you know, find out you know, what the problem is down there. And he found out that Studebaker had understated their break-even point by something on the order of 80 or 100,000 cars. And uh, there was just no way they were going to turn a profit for a while. Once they merged, there was no one merging them. It's really hard to undo a merger. So they were stuck together. And you know, it was a rocky road for the next five years. What should have happened and the whole plan behind it, which was a good plan, was they were merged together, they would sell each other's products, and instantly they, they, the engineering team would get together and design one car body that could be used by both brands. This is what Nash and Hudson did. It's what Chevrolet had been doing for years. It's what Ford had been doing for years. You know, uh, a Pontiac is basically a Chevrolet with more trim. So the uh, Studebaker and Packard, the plan was they would eventually share the same body and that would cut their overhead tremendously. They would be able to spread their costs over so many more vehicles and they would be profitable. And it would have worked too, but they just didn't have enough capital to last long enough. They should have gone out of business in 58. It's a miracle that they didn't, but they managed to pull the fat from the fire. They brought out the Lark in 59, and that saved them, you know, for as long as they lasted. Actually, it saved, it, it saved the corporation. Hi there. I'm Rex May, and this is the 61 Lark. Well, sure, it's beautiful, but more important, the Lark's got something new. A new kind of performance. A new kind of excitement unmatched in any U.S. compact made today. And the Lark was truly a miracle of a car for Studebaker. Built using existing parts from the Studebaker Starlight, a car which consumers didn't like. They had that 1953 car that they had been peddling through 58. And basically, because the company had no money and could not afford a new body, they took that 1953 sedan body and they sawed off both ends, they shortened the wheelbase, and came up with very simple styling that stood out. That was the Lark, really. There was nothing new about the body other than the front end cap and, and the rear styling. It was designed on a shoestring, and they used a lot of parts that they had been using for years, and, and this is the interesting thing. They sold the Lark for more than they had been selling the, the 58 big car. And they were able to get away with it because it was a new concept. This was not some stripped-down big car that you would be ashamed to be seen in. This was a compact car. 
and compact cars were just come becoming the rage. And in 1959, the dam broke on the compact car market. And Studebaker was, you know, part of it was luck, but part of it was good product planning. And in 1959, they turned in the best year in their history, profit-wise. The car sold like nickel hamburgers. It was amazing. And, uh, and it was a good car. You know, it was roomy for a compact, and they nailed it as far as ride and handling. Gas mileage was very good. It was underpowered, but with the Lark, you could get a V8 engine, and Studebaker had a really excellent V8. And a lot of people wanted a small car, but they wanted power, so sales of V8-powered compacts at Studebaker, at least, were, were very good. So they, they did, all in all, they did very well with that car. In 1960, Studebaker car sales fell because the big three got into the compact market. 61, there was a recession in the American auto industry that hit Studebaker hard. But despite the company struggling, Studebaker was about to release their magnum opus, the Avanti. You know, it's not unusual in the history of automotive companies to bring out a glamour car when you're struggling. The idea behind it is that this is going to be a halo car. It's going to spread a halo over all your products. It's going to be a draw. People are going to, and this was the case of the Avanti, people are going to want to come into the Studebaker showroom to see this fantastically styled new car, and they'll end up buying a, a Lark. So that's that was the plan behind it. And they also thought that they could build enough of them and price it high enough to where they could you know, they could do the Avanti profitably. They did it with a fiberglass body for two reasons. One, because the Corvette had a fiberglass body. And two, because Studebaker didn't have enough money to pay for the hard tooling to stamp it out in steel. Tooling for fiberglass bodies is cheap. And I think it was one of the best looking cars that's ever been made in America. I, I remember coming out of high school. I was a senior and I was uh, skipping class in the morning to go downtown for breakfast. I'll admit that here. And this gold Avanti pulled up to a traffic light at, at the intersection where I was waiting to cross. And I had never seen one before. And my jaw hit the ground. I had never seen anything so dramatic. I mean, in a sea of Ford Fairlanes and Dodge Darts, here is this Avanti. And I didn't know what it was. You know, I, I, I was with a couple of guys, and I said, what is that? And a guy says, oh, that's a Studebaker Avanti. And, and I was dumbfounded. I said, that's Studebaker? Because, you know, a friend of mine had a Studebaker Lark, and, and <laughs> the Avanti didn't look anything like any, any Studebaker I had ever seen. It was dramatic, and it was supposed to be. And it was a beautiful car. They were well-finished. They were very, very fast. And the shame is that they had so many production problems with them that they never really got it sorted out. I think it took them about two years to finally get it sorted out. And by then, you know, Studebaker was in such bad shape that nobody wanted to buy anything with a Studebaker name on it. And one of the biggest problems for Studebaker was its own union. The problem was the union, they fought tooth and nail for every concession. They struck at the most inopportune times. If you're an automobile union and you really want to cripple a company, you say, okay, we're going to wait till announcement time for the new models and then we're going to go on strike and then dealers are going to have nothing to sell. And by the time we win our concessions and go back to work, you know, the market's going to be gone. And 
they did that. They did that in 62, and it just devastated the company. They were having a party down there in South Bend. They had college guys that were, were on the payroll who were not actually working. There was one guy who was, was typing his college theses in the bathroom. There were stuff that uh, a good management doesn't allow to happen. After the, the strike in 62, the company never really recovered. For some reason, I don't know if the, if the buying public just gave up on them, but car sales just all of a sudden went off the cliff. And the company was still building cars. Good management tells you you don't build a car without an order. That's been, you know, like a like a watchword in the industry from, from day one. But they wanted to keep the assembly lines going, so they were building cars that they had no orders for. And then at the end of the month or at the end of two months, they'd have this huge stockpile of cars all over the place, all around South Bend, in fields with weeds growing up to the doors, all getting sunbaked. And they would have to call their dealers up and say, here, we got a special deal on, you know, take 10 cars and we're going to knock so much money off of that. The, the company was losing money. That was it. They ran out of money. They had to close down and they announced it just before Christmas 1963. While the company would continue to build cars in Hamilton, Ontario until March of 1967, the closure of the plant in South Bend had a devastating impact on the community. There was actually a book written on, on the effect of the closure of South Bend. And there was, you know, there was increased suicides, alcoholism, depression, family breakups, because, you know, thousands of people lost their jobs. And the biggest employer in South Bend yeah, it was gone. So it was very tough for the human element, the you know, the, the public. But the town itself got together, businessmen, and they worked hard to help people find jobs, to lure new industries in, to do everything they could to help the workers that were displaced by this loss. And uh, I think South Bend is probably a better place now than it was, you know, back when Studebaker was there. I it's been a few years since I've been there, but uh, I, I think overall they've done better. One thing I do really uh, appreciate is that the uh, city itself has embraced its automotive heritage. They have an outstanding museum, uh, the Studebaker National Museum, and um, you know they they have. Uh, gatherings of Studebaker enthusiasts every year. And it's, it's really, you know, they don't try to bury the past, they celebrate it. And that's the way it should be. This is, this is American industrial history. And, you know, good or bad, we should recognize it. And that's what we do here at Our American Stories every day. We don't try and bury the past. We celebrate it. And that's the good, the bad, and everything in between. You've been listening to Patrick Foster automotive historian. Great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery, our in-house Hillsdale grad, bringing us another really fine story. This one about American automotive history. And in the end, American manufacturing history, which is in the end a really important part of American history, telling the business story of this country. Well, it's telling the story of this country. And my goodness, what an impact the closing of this plant had on this small town, South Bend, Indiana. It was devastating. What had given life to the town ultimately well, took some life away. The museum is still there, though. Go visit the Studebaker's story here on Our American Story.
is Our American Stories. And now we bring you the story of an American artist whose fuzzy afro and calming voice grace TV sets not only from coast to coast, but around the world from Muncie, Indiana. Here's Jesse Edwards with our look into the life of Bob Ross. If you mention the name Bob Ross around a baby boomer, they're likely to have fond memories growing up listening to his soothing voice while watching his educational painting show. Despite the fact that he died over 20 years ago, if you mention Bob Ross to a teenager, they're likely to be just as knowledgeable. Then there's everybody else in between who doesn't know Bob Ross because you're either not old enough to remember him the first time around or young enough to know about his recent viral comeback. Hello, I'm Bob Ross, and I'd like to welcome you to the 21st Joy of Painting series. If this is your first time with us, let me extend a personal invitation for you to drag out your little paintbrushes and some paints and, and paint along with us each show. And who hasn't sat around on a lazy weekend afternoon and watched the great Bob Ross do his thing on public television? Or just, just drag up the old easy chair and enjoy a relaxing half hour as we play some of nature's masterpieces on canvas. The mild-mannered, soft-spoken painter had a special ability to put his viewers into a trance-like state as we watched him paint his happy little trees and his beautiful landscapes. Now then, <clears throat> let's decide. Maybe there's a happy tree evergreen tree. He lives right there. Start with just touching the canvas. Use just the corner of the brush, just the corner, and begin pushing, making the bristles bend slightly downward. See there? Look at that. Isn't that a nice little tree? And he lives right here in this brush. All you have to do is sort of push him out. Bob Ross created and starred in The Joy of Painting on PBS, where he taught viewers how to paint like he did using the wet-on-wet technique. His process involved painting his entire canvas in white before he laid down the other oil paints. While some stuffy, classically trained artists would say this is cheating, it didn't matter to Bob or anyone in his audience for that matter. We'll go right up to the top of the canvas, and we'll start. We'll just do some little X's, little crisscross strokes, and we'll work all the way across the top. Now the color is continually mixing with the liquid white and it creates all those beautiful variations that we want. Let me put a little more color on the brush here. And although Ross died of lymphoma at age 52 in 1995 on the 4th of July, he's just as famous now, if not more so, than he was at the peak of his career. There we go. Let's start at the top and work down. And that way, our sky will get progressively lighter toward the horizon. And that's exactly what we're looking for. In a landscape, you want things to get lighter toward the horizon and darker as they can come away from the horizon. His videos have millions of views on YouTube and has over 600,000 followers on Twitch where PBS regularly marathons episodes of The Joy of Painting. That effect happens automatically. You really don't have to worry about it. It, it just happens. And that truly is the joy of painting. There. His soothing voice continues to calm people. And his endless supply of inspirational quotes like, There are no mistakes, only happy accidents are more relevant than ever. And see what happens. As you paint, you'll see all kind of things happening on your canvas. And very soon you learn to use all these beautiful little things that happen. We don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. One of the first things people noticed about Bob Ross was his trademark afro. But it might surprise some fans to learn that his hair was naturally straight. He chose to get a perm because he thought he would save money by not having to get haircuts. Yet, Ross later regretted the lush curly locks and wanted to change his hair back to its natural state. 
But by that point, his company had already included Ross's iconic fro for the company logo, and there was no going back. Give him a shake. <laughs> and just beat the devil out of him. Sometimes those brushes get away and they go, soon, clean the other side of the room. That's when you find out who your friends are. Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida, and dropped out of his freshman year of high school to work on construction with his father. In 1961, then 18-year-old Ross enlisted in the Air Force and was put into service as a medical records technician. He eventually rose to the rank of Master Sergeant and served as the first sergeant of the U.S. Air Force Clinic at Ellison Air Force Base in Alaska. I spent half my life in the military, and there I had to, I had to live in somebody else's world all the time. And painting offered me freedom. I'd come home after all day of playing soldier, and I'd paint a picture and I could paint the kind of world that I wanted. It was clean, it was sparkling, shiny, beautiful, no pollution, nobody nobody upset. Everybody was happy in this world. That may be how I made it through 20 years of military. There we go. Because I could find freedom on this canvas. There is absolute freedom here. And I think we're all looking for freedom. His time in Alaska undoubtedly influenced his later work. It was in Alaska where he saw snow and mountains for the first time, both of which were heavily featured in his paintings. If you've never been to Alaska, you're to go see it. It's almost unreal. I was born and raised in Florida. And was, <laughs> I was almost 20 years old before I ever saw snow. And my favorite uncle, Uncle Sam, he sent me up there in January thought that would be funny. <laughs> it was funny. I, uh, I got off the plane. The first thing I did was stepped on the ice and fell on my bottom because I didn't know how to walk on ice. In Alaska, they have ice fog. And ice fog occurs normally when it's about 30 below or colder. And it covers everything, everything with frost. It is so beautiful. Trees look like they're in full foliage. So beautiful, and the light plays through it, and these, all these little ice-covered, frosty things, they act like prisms, and they break up the light, and you see all colors in the trees. In the dead of winter, you can see just, oh, you have to go see it. I can't, can't explain it all to you. So pretty. It's hard to believe that anyone could watch this maestro at his easel and not be tempted to pick up a paintbrush. But the truth is, most of Ross's audience didn't even paint. So why do people watch? Some people just tune in for Ross's welcoming persona and positive musings about life. Others tuned in because it helped lull them to sleep. A fact that Ross was well aware of. He didn't mind. That's the name of the game. It's enjoying. You really ought to enjoy what you do in life. If you do, then you'll do a good job. And I certainly enjoy what I'm doing. I spend half my life doing somebody else's thing. Painting should make you happy. If it does nothing else, it should make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, you're doing the wrong thing. Because it's fun. And if you can do things all of your life that make you happy, needless to say, you're going to be a happy person. And you know, when you, when you buy your first tube of paint, you get an artist's license. And that license says you can do anything that makes you happy. 
he tirelessly churned out three copies of every painting that appeared on The Joy of Painting. He kept the first painting off-screen and used it as a reference as he worked on the copy that appeared on the show. The final painting was completed after the episode was shot. A photographer would take pictures of these third final copies, and the images would appear in Ross's how-to books. I want to get you to try being creative on canvas, just to take your time and, and sit down and have nothing in mind when you start. Just have a good feeling and be happy and, and in love with life and your world, and, and sit down and begin playing. And if you feel good about yourself and the world, it'll show in your painting, and all these little things will happen. Bob Ross generously filmed 31 seasons of The Joy of Painting, but PBS didn't pay the artistic genius for a single episode. Instead, Ross used the show to market his brand. He made most of his money from his company, Bob Ross Inc., selling art supplies and instructional guides. The company also offered painting classes taught by artists trained in Ross's singular methods. If you happen to get some of it down in here, who cares? We'll end up turning that into reflections. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Just don't worry about it. Learn how to use what happens. In addition to being the sleep-inducing master that had the same effect on the brain as Valium, Ross was an avid animal lover. Peapod the squirrel could be found chilling in Ross's shirt pocket as he painted, and sometimes Ross would take a break from painting and bottle feed the squirrel for his audience. And this is how hard it is to get a little squirrel to eat. That's all there is to it. Aren't they the most precious little characters you've ever seen? This is surreal television. Yeah. You could feed them ten times a day, and they'll always be just about this hungry. Hey, you know, I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to go to work. Okay? All right. I'm going to set him right over here and let him finish lunch. And since he created those three paintings for each episode of The Joy of Painting, he ended up with thousands of works over the course of his life. Somewhere around 30,000 paintings. And he was practically drowning in fan letters. His popularity and ambient-like side effects on viewers caused them to send him up to 200 letters every day. And on several occasions, when a regular fan would stop writing in, Bob Ross would actually call that fan just to see if they were okay. So what happened to all those masterpieces that Bob Ross painstakingly created? He donated them all to public television stations across the country so they could auction them off and keep the money. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Hey, now we can wash the old brush. And if you've painted with me before, you know this is the fun part of this whole technique. We wash our brushes with odorless thinner, shake them off, <laughs> and just beat the devil out of them. And that's where you take all your hostilities and frustrations. And it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there we go. Just have to splash the cameraman one time so he, he doesn't feel neglected. This is Our American Stories. By the way, nothing makes me happier than seeing my wife and my little girl, 13 years old, in front of the smart TV, painting together to whom... To old Bob Ross videos. Bob Ross's story here on Our American Stories. Great job as always by Jesse.